helping clients meet their financial goals and prepare for the future. Schroders actively and responsibly manages investments. The world is forever changing, and we understand the need to adapt and evolve in line with what matters most to our clients. Hello, my name is John Schaefer, and welcome to the CityWire Wealth Manager podcast. According to CityWire's latest alpha female research, only 9% of UK funds are run by mixed gender teams. I caught up with Victoria Stevens and Matt Tong from one of the UK's top performing mixed teams, the Lion Trust Economic Advantage Team. We discussed the performance of their smaller companies and microcap strategies, as well as Victoria's experience of working in a male-dominated industry. Looking at the, the both of the funds, um, you know you've, you've had pretty pretty stellar performance um, over the last couple of years. Um, what do you think has been your best investment decision? So, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily been the number one in the in the pile in terms of the the best absolute return. Um, but I think one that we've both been really pleased with has been YouGov. Um, and that's because right at the start of our of mine and Matt's fund management careers, uh, after one of the defining events was the launch of our Lion Trust UK microcap fund, uh, which launched in March 2016. And YouGov was one of the companies that we met in the run-up to launch of that fund. And it was it was actually our biggest holding in the fund at launch. So a quick word about it, it's a market research business which draws on on this vast database of information about consumer preferences and, and likes and dislikes, which is continually updated via these responses that it gets every day from a panel of, I think it's now over 9 million members across the world. So, so it's a sort of very data-rich business. And it's been a great investment in, in, in valuation, in, in value terms. So it's, I think it's risen in value over six-fold since that initial purchase. Um, so, so certainly, you know, strong, very strong absolute returns. But also what's been really nice about it is that it's, it's demonstrated the value of our microcap fund uh, within our suite of, in, of economic advantage funds on our team. So uh, part of the reason for launching the fund, I mean, obviously part of the reason was to, to create this fantastic vehicle uh, in its own right uh, for investors that wanted access to that part of the market. But another reason for it was, was to provide a bit of a petri dish of ideas, which the team could then access at an early stage of the company's growth, but could then go on and compound out their growth over many years and grow and feed that new idea flow that was going into our bigger funds, which play higher up the market cap chain. Um, and that fund's been hugely valuable to the team in that right. Um, and I think YouGov's just a really nice example of a company that we got access to early on in microcap and has since it's actually since been sold for microcap because it's now far too big for that fund. But along the way, our smaller companies fund and then our big special situations fund have also bought into that position on their sort of long-term holdings in, in those two funds. So uh, a, a good example in that sense. Yeah, and, and you say that it's come out of the microcap and, and made its way into the smaller cap and special situations. Do you see the microcap often as a feeder to those other funds? Yes, I mean, I mean that's the whole idea of, of that having that suite of funds that plays all the way up the market cap chain. So, you know, ideally, <laughs> what we might find is, is a company just like YouGov, where we can get access to it um, very early on in microcap when it's when it's really quite a small business, 
Um, and then as it grows, you know, at some point it will be big enough to then put into the smaller companies fund uh, and smaller companies can then, you know, obviously hold that as a, as a long-term holding. But along the way, then special situations, which is an all-cap vehicle but has uh, a minimum of 20% allocated to small cap, it aims to keep its small cap proportion between 20 and 30%. So, um, you know, it's obviously also looking for new small cap ideas. And then once the company grows to a certain size, then, of course, the, the idea would be, you know, ideally that it would get uh, put into that fund as well. So, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Going on to performance during the pandemic, um, which stocks have really done well? I mean, so if you, um, if you just take a step back and then think about those assets, We've ended up owning, you know, we're in sectors like software, we're in, we're in some industrials, we're in media, we're in the wealth management companies that have recurring income. So we tended to shy away from and don't really own the process, those businesses that got hit by COVID in the first place. So, you know, uh, on, on the front line, so pub companies, restaurant companies, airlines, bowling alleys, these kind of, you know, businesses we didn't really own in the process because they're not you can't see these tangible assets so in one sense we were you know very lucky to to have avoided some of that that you know those things have got hit the hardest so that's kind of explained why the fund didn't sell off as much and that's you know that's just luck of the process and the way the pandemic developed but in terms of things and we did have things that did well um Generally, those things that benefit from people being at home. So we've got, you know, we've got investments in the video game sector. So Team 17, they make video games, reported this morning, very strong results. Keyword Studios in video game development, Sumo Group. Uh, so, you know, so they did well. We've got a business called Focusrite, which makes audio equipment for amateur musicians. Very strong sales because people are at home getting out their old guitar from the loft and Buying a Scarlet T12, which then must got with the product again. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've, I've actually, I'm actually recording on that right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so, actually, if you, if you, Pill Hunt, you know, the, the Pill Hunt research is saying that, you know, they're going to have a new growth avenue for people doing podcasts. So you are actually, it's great to hear you're using one. So, you know, they've benefited from it. Um, invested in a business called FRP, who are a an insolvency practitioner. Um, and they've, I mean, shares benefited because people people think that there's going to be more insolvencies in the UK. Actually, the stats so far is that have, you know, there hasn't been, but they're expecting a very busy second half. But they are working as a big profile one. And probably the last one that's benefited is a business called EKF, which make a, which has got um, a product they put into uh, COVID testing. And what it does is it, is it deactivates viruses in in blood, so you can take blood samples without fear of reinfection. And they've been doing lots of those. So those are things have done really well. Let's take an example of focus. Right, um, has its gains sort of ended? Um, is there much more growth that can happen on the, the horizon? Considering, I know you're talking about uh, companies that have intellectual property, but there's a lot of other people that do the same thing as focus. Right. So, I mean, what, we, what we're looking for, again, and harking back to the process, um, is, you know, a company that has superior competitive advantage, which is provided by those key intangible assets that, that Matt mentioned, the intellectual property, the distribution, or the recurring income. You know, in Focus Rights case, the argument that we would be making is that the intellectual property inherent to their products 
plus, in their case, what is increasingly, you know, a genuinely global um, distribution capability, position it very well to continue to take share, you know, for, for many years into the future. You know, the, the, the general theory of markets would be that if other companies see a company in a sector where they're making excess returns, then market theory would suggest that competitors will increasingly come into that market and compete those excess returns away to the mean. But the whole theory of our process revolves around trying to find businesses where, you know, you've got this superior competitive advantage that makes fundamentally makes what they're doing very hard for competitors to replicate, certainly in a way that is, you know, as strong as theirs. Um, and so our argument would be that we believe that Focusrite could do that for many years into the future. You mentioned Team 17 as well. Uh, how much of the, the share price bump do you think is attributed to um, that publishing agreement with Tencent? Um, that's a good question to ask, uh, to, to answer really. I think the share has a very strong momentum anyway because of the COVID work from home, demand for video games just increasing. Um, anyway, and then obviously you've got Tencent, who, who, who have taken, you know, stakes in lots of different video gamers globally, actually, um, and seem to be following a strategy of taking a stake, perhaps working on games that are sold into China with them. I mean, I think Tencent seems to be one of the, the ways you can actually sell product in China, because it's obviously quite a restricted market. Um, so I wouldn't say, you know, from a UK investor point of view, that Everyone went, wow, Tencent have taken a position in Team 17. I'm shocked by that. And that's going to mean a lot for the shares. I mean, I think if, if you look at when we did the stake in first, um, first, uh, frontier development, sorry. Yeah. Are, yeah. Who, who are a, uh, well, a competitor, another video game developer, probably different strategy to Team 17, although they are starting to copy it a bit. Um, you know, their shares got bumped in there about 10%, I think, on, on that investment. Um, so it's very hard to separate, given the environment. And, and also, you've also the other thing, you've got all these quality, high-growth companies re-rating, certainly relative to where the market also going on. So, I mean, who knows, really? How about um, perhaps some of the holdings that haven't done so well over the past year? You've got... Um, you know, TriFast, PayPoint. Why do you sort of keep some of the, the holdings that, that haven't done so well? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of points to that. So, I mean, the, the ones, as, as Matt's already said, you know, the, 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 we were fortunate during the pandemic to have had less exposure probably than most to those businesses that were among the very, you know, the very worst affected um, by the lockdown and, and by the virus. But, but inevitably, you know, there are, businesses that we hold that have struggled either from a direct impact or, you know, from a sort of second derivative impact in that their their customers, um, you know, are, are, have been very heavily impacted by lockdown. And, and some of the, you know, some of the companies that have done the, that have fared the worst over the year to date are, are exactly those businesses. So, you know, good example, probably the best two examples in the portfolio are a company called Accesso, um, which you know are exposed to the to customers in theme parks. Um, so obviously, theme parks have been completely shut during um, during the vast majority of the lockdown, and therefore, 
you know, it's impossible for them to be <laughs> impossible for them to be um, generating revenue from those customers at that time. And then QuickSync is the other one that's probably worth pulling out, which uh, makes it of computer um, platforms that drive high-end slot machines. They're going to casinos, and again, you know, their end customers, which are the, the machine manufacturers selling into those uh, casinos, well, they're not able to really sell any product because nobody's going to casinos at the moment. So. You know, those are two examples of businesses that have been hit a lot harder. Um, but but for us, you know, we're quite fortunate, really, um, because I think it is often quite a lot harder intellectually to make that concrete decision to sell something than it is to buy something. I think I think as humans, you know, you're 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 kind of wired to to really feed off that conviction that that causes you to want to buy something, but. But selling something is hard, either when it comes to, you know, you know, the FOMO, if you like, the fear of missing out of something that might go on and do and do and continue to do really well, or when it comes to crystallising a loss. Um, so it is a lot harder to make that decision to sell something. So for us as fund managers, having our very clear investment process um, to which you can anchor your decisions um, is really helpful, both on the buying side but also on the sell side. So, you know, if a company of ours is faring poorly at any point in time, what we will be doing as the fund managers is looking at it to see whether or not we think that whatever the reason was that we bought it in the first place, is that reasoning still intact? Is it still possessing those key intangible asset strengths that, that were the reason that we bought it in the first place? Um, and often, you know, we'll, what, we'll, what we'll see is that if a company is exposed to, you know, a weekend market that's perfectly understandable and hopefully temporary, such as in hopefully both of those two cases, you know, we'll say to ourselves, well, okay, you know, the key reasons why we bought those investments in the first place haven't gone away. So that would be the reason why we wouldn't sort of sell out at the bottom, if you like. I wanted to move on um, to some questions related to our um, female alpha research um, and Victoria obviously you're, you're one of the, the best performing female um, fund managers in the UK I want to start by, by looking at why you first got into fund management yeah sure so um, I mean at the start of my career as a financial journalist um, then moved into, onto uh, the sell side so I worked for a uh, sell side broker for five years uh, concentrating on smaller companies uh, the broker was called FinCap um, but I sort of always uh, knew that you know fund management was a, a you know somewhere that I would love to end up, and that's I think for me it was predominantly because it's it's such a hugely interesting and varied job. So you know every day, particularly as a manager of um, small cap funds and micro cap funds, you, you you're you're so privileged to be able to sit in front of these really entrepreneurial business owners and managers from. You know, this vast array of different sectors and walks of life, uh, hearing about their businesses and, and, you know, their individual journeys to where they've got to. I mean, it, it, it's hugely inspiring. And, and as I say, you know, I feel incredibly privileged to be able to do it. I, that's interesting. I, I guess being a small cap manager, you have perhaps far greater access to the, the company owners than you would on a, on a mega cap fund. That's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, we under normal circumstances, we on our team w- would say to you that 
you know, we wouldn't invest in a new small cap or micro cap business without first meeting the management team. Now, of course, we're living in a brave new world and uh, the world of Zoom calls and, and Teams calls and, 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 and much of this is, is now done over video. Um, so, of course, you know, in the current environment, it is possible that, you know, we might on occasion need to invest without actually face-to-face -face meeting management. But under normal circumstances, yes, you know, you, you are hugely privileged to be able to, you know, get a lot of face time with, with you know, the really upper echelons of management um, as, as the businesses you're investing in. And, and what do you feel it's like being part of a, a mixed-gender team? Do you think the, the dynamic changes at all? I mean, you're... In the minority of UK funds that have a mixed gender team, only 9% of funds in the UK are, are mixed gender and, and even less solo female managers. So, so do, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm personally, I'm, I'm really not a fan of kind of labelling how men and women are supposed to think. You know, I, I think we're all just really different people and, and we all think differently. It's not necessarily about whether or not I'm a woman or a man and and, you know, I, as, as so many other people do, you know, value diversity in all of its forms. I know it's a popular thing to say at the moment, but it is true. You know, it's not just about, you know, mixed genders, but, you know, people of different races and socioeconomic backgrounds and so on. It's, you know, diversity of thought in all of its forms should be celebrated and, and it is very valuable at, at a team level. Um, but I think, you know, for, just to sort of bring it back to Matt's and my experience of, of working together from the start, I think it. You know, what Anthony Cross, um, who, who sort of recruited us into the team, you know, saw in us right at the beginning was very different and also complementary strengths and, and and different ways in which we would think about businesses. Um, and, it, and it is genuinely very valuable to have all of those character differences all pitching into a decision-making process because it can really challenge how you think about um, businesses and challenge your own personal biases, of which we all obviously all have <laughs> many, um, to, to, to be able to, to, to put those together. So, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but I, I really think that, you know, Matt and I throughout our careers at Foreign Fund Management have definitely been been more together than, than the sum of our individual parts, if that makes sense. Uh, well, uh, uh, does that mean you have quite well sort of defined roles and specialties in the team? No, I mean we tried not to deliberately tried not to, to pigeon pigeonhole ourselves into particular roles. Um, so, for example, just one example of that would be we, we discussed at the start, you know, whether or not we would have sector specialisms. For example, I mean Matt is an engineer by background, he studied engineering, and um, you know I uh, FinCap was involved in in breaking and, and looking after many technology clients. So. Yeah, that was one thing that potentially we could have done to start with was that Matt took the engineers, you know, the role for sort of analysing the engineers and I could have done the technology stocks. But but we took the view that that wasn't particularly helpful because actually, you know, it, it is always valuable to have a, a different perspective on, on these businesses. And also, you know, you would then potentially be subject to people trying to um, sort of pitch in ideas simply for the sake of getting an idea in on their patch as opposed to the merits of each company individually. So we decided... Um, you know, not to do that. So, so no, we don't really have defined roles. It's more about, you know, when we're making a collective investment decision, um, just being having having different attitudes and different perceptions to that. I mean, we always joke that, you know, <laughs> Matt's outlook on on life and investments is is typically more bullish than mine, and probably individually, my outlook would probably be a bit too bearish, and Matt's maybe too, be too bullish. But together. You know, we sort of rein in each other and we have these um, <laughs> these silly stress 
ball type things. One of them's in the shape of a bear and one of them's in the shape of a bull, which I've had ever since I was a journalist. And we put the opposite one on each other's desk so that when the other one's not there, we we laugh about you know reminding each other to to think in the other in the way that the other person. I would feel think. we we should get them in our office as well. Actually, <laughs> they sound great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I do appreciate kind of kind of your views on it, but but do you think? the asset management industry could do do better to get women involved in fund management? I mean, the asset management industry, like so many others, um, I think my, my view is, is probably that it's not so much a problem of people not wanting to hire women into fund management. It's probably more a question of how do you increase you know the, the the perception of 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 asset management as a career or how do you how do you increase the knowledge about it at an earlier stage so you know in the higher levels of education for example so so personally you know i i can't say that i ever really had a lot of exposure to fund management as an industry um you know when i was you know at school in the civics form or really at university um so so until i actually got into the industry sort of worming my way in from the side, you know, I, I probably wasn't fully aware of all of the all of the benefits and, and attractions. So I think, you know, asset management, like so many other industries, could definitely try and do more to increase the, the knowledge of the industry, um, you know, within all the spheres of education so that people can make, or the students can make a more informed choice about the relative merits of different careers. And and as you said before, I think that's not not just pertinent to women. I think that that's to all, really, isn't it? I, I think, as you said, yeah. maybe maybe it's not promoting itself in the right way. Um, uh, you said perception, the word perception, and, and maybe when you joined in twenty fifteen, the, the industry probably still had a bit of a, a macho image. And and did you find there were any issues when you were meeting with clients? Yeah, I mean, bear in mind that I, I came from the sales side, which I would say is definitely probably more of a macho image type environment than, than the buy side. Um, so so my, <laughs> my expectations were perhaps a little different to people who'd come from a different route um, on, on that front. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's been very rare, I would say, in my experience, um, to, to have experienced, you know, that type of if you want to call it discrimination in, in our industry. I mean, there have been isolated occasions perhaps where I've sat in front of a client or a company where, you know, a, a generally an all-male team has potentially, you know, addressed most of the questions to the men in the room rather than to me. But, I mean, Matt and I, you know, sort of joked about it previously. I mean, that that's their loss, not mine, really, because... <laughs> You know, if, if you're in, you know, if you underestimate people that you're in, you're in meetings with, no matter what their, their background, then then you do so at your peril, kind of thing. So, so I, I mean, but I, I would very much say that that's that's you know that's been a very isolated couple of incidents. That's not, you know, it's not an overarching feature of my experience in the industry so far. And, and when the when those sort of rare occasions happen, what's been the support like from the rest of your team? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my, my team's absolutely fantastic in every way. Um, you know, I think it's, I mean, it is relevant in terms of sort of support and, you know, making you feel like your voice is valued and heard, especially when you've had difficult meetings such as that. But I mean, I would say, you know, the, the, the main 
area in which my team has been incredibly supportive it is is in one of the the key challenges really for women in any industry you know at a certain level which is the challenge of balancing you know family life and working life which is you know something which many women of my age kind of struggle with and struggle to come to terms with whatever the decision is that they make on that front Um, and my team have been just you know I could not have asked for more of them in terms of how supportive and understanding they've been in, 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 you know, supporting me through um, what has been, you know, inevitably a, a bit of a challenging period in my life in terms of having a three-year-old and a one-year-old at home. Um, but everything from, you know, having open and honest conversations about things like maternity leave, um, right the way through to the fact that I'm I'm probably in a very small minority of, of women in my industry who's, who's able to have a four-day week. Um, and the team have been, you know, incredibly supportive in helping to facilitate that, which for me, that's not saying it would be the case for everybody, but for me kind of makes all the difference in that all important uh, work-life balance. So, you know, I, I feel incredibly lucky to be supported so, so so well by my team in that front. Brilliant. Well, Victoria and Matt, I really appreciate you talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your interest. No problem. Thanks very much. Schroders is built on 200 years of experience and expertise. We partner with our clients, constructing innovative products and solutions across private assets and alternatives, solutions, mutual funds, institutional and wealth management. By combining our commitment to active management and focus on sustainability, our strategic capabilities are designed to deliver positive outcomes. With over 5,000 talented staff across 35 locations, we are able to stay close to our clients and understand their needs.